I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Second Chance a podcast that explores the notion of second chance. What is a second chance? Who deserves a second chance? And who decides whether someone is worthy of a second chance? My name's Raphael Rowe, and today I'm speaking with Andrew Morris. Andrew grew up on one of the toughest social housing estates in London, and like many of his age and generation, he smoked his first cannabis spliff to impress his peers, particularly the girls. It was the start of his journey to becoming an alcoholic, drug addict and inevitably a convicted criminal and prisoner. His story is replicated all over the world with young men and women being criminalised rather than helped for their substance abuse. That doesn't have to be the end of it for Andrew and it isn't. He now works for the major government department at the heart of the criminal justice system here in the UK, the Ministry of Justice, which is great to hear because if we as a society want to change the game, we have to use players with experience like Andrew. It's amazing, isn't it? Because I think you and I made contact a few months ago. We've never met, we've never seen each other and we've never spoken before yet we know of each other quite well. Tell me how that came about. Well, so uh, I I came out of prison quite recently, and one of the things that I discovered was LinkedIn. And um, uh, there was a lady on there who reached out to me, and she just said to me, you know, have you connected with Raphael Rowe? And I was just like, well, no, I haven't. And um, she kind of encouraged that, and, and I, you know, I reached out, and then we just started having a bit of a, uh, to and fro on the on the LinkedIn, and here we are. But um, even before um, this lady Rachel had made that suggestion, I'd I'd heard of you because um, while I was sat in prison, I watched lots of um, you know the documentaries and things that you did, the pilgrimage and all that kind of stuff. And I'd heard about your your story, you know, from the from the eighties. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of where we've come from and to in a in a very short space of time really 
And, and what does that feel like? I mean, myself being a prisoner, watching people on television, coming out and then meeting some of those people. But in our case, it's slightly different because I was in exactly the same space as you. All of a sudden, you're in those prison cells. You have the... Um, the, the ability to watch television for a long time, I wasn't able to watch television, but you're watching these programs, knowing that the presenter or the reporter is a prisoner who was in prison for so many years, yet he's working for a prestigious BBC program or, or he's appearing on BBC programs. Does that inspire prisoners, do you think? Or do they think, who does he think he is? What's your thinking? It was inspirational because it's like, isn't it great that, you know, almost one of us, um, you know, whether you're, innocent or guilty um there's this kind of sense of you know you're in prison so you're in there um you know until whatever happens happens in your case you know you, you eventually get found to be innocent but uh for me i i was you know i was guilty i just didn't think that my sentence was warranted but that's another matter it's exciting to see people who've been in that space uh getting on with their lives in a you know in a productive and positive way and especially when you're you're so um you know determined to to turn your life around post prison um i think people find that really inspiring i don't think they look at all and think that you know who does he think he is not i mean i certainly didn't that wasn't my my story at all Let's roll back the years then before you ended up in prison. Um, tell me a little bit about your background, Andrew. Where did you come from? What did you do as a young man? So I, I grew up in Brixton. Some people think that it was notorious. Um, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, it was home. Um, it's called the, the Angel Town Estate. Um, it's still there. Uh, it's different to how, how it was. But, um, I mean, to give you um, an idea, I remember, you know, being a kid and I remember seeing policemen after the, the you know, the riots of the 80s walking around in threes and fours. Um, you know, that's how, uh, you know, the, the kind of, that's the, 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 the impression that people got of, of Angel Town. But actually, you know, I've got some very fond memories of growing up in Angel Town. Um, there are people that, came from the same estate that I came from that didn't get into trouble with the police and have, you know, gone on to have very successful careers. Um, but uh, equally, I, I grew up in, on Angel Town at the time when crack cocaine first kind of emerged on the scene in London and, um, you know, people were committing some really horrendous acts. I saw, you know, a, a body um, by the time I was four or five, you know, and that stayed with me. It was the milkman who was stabbed and I'd later found found out that it was because um, he was being robbed for his money belt um, and I was ushered away because I came out of the front door um, with my grandmother who brought me up at that time um, and I saw this you know the body on the floor and and um, I, I don't know what my reaction was and she's now passed but um, I remember kind of getting into my 20s and asking questions about what had happened and what that was all about. And, you know, the explanation was given to me that that was around the time when crack cocaine um, first sort of emerged in South East London. Um, and so, but I mean, that aside, um, I grew up on the estate at a time when, um, you know, you sometimes hear people talk about this stuff and it sounds like very old hat, but it's the truth where, you know, people could leave their doors open uh, and I'm not that old. Um, the people would leave their doors open. Everybody on the estate knew who, you know, one another was. Um, you know, my grandmother, for example, if I wasn't around to go and meet her and help with shopping bags as she came back from shopping, somebody somewhere, if they saw her walking along with the shopping, would go and help her. 
I know the area well because I grew up on Cold Arbor Lane just down the road in Camberwell. So I'm, I'm originally from Camberwell, which isn't that far from where you grew up. In fact, Brixton was one of my stumping grounds, Brixton, Peckham and Camberwell. So I know that triangle very well. And I was around during the riots as well and witnessed it for, for myself. But paint me a picture of, of who Andrew was. Was Andrew a tearaway? Was Andrew a petty thief? You know, during these early years, what was you like? What was you doing at this time? I was, for some reason, really um, fixated with uniformed organisations. So I ended up joining the Scouts and then eventually the the Army Cadets, um, you know, and I was really determined to do well. I saw some of my friends, you know, getting badges and getting rank and all this kind of stuff. So I was determined to do the same thing in the Cadet, uh, sorry, in the Scouts. I went through all of the various badges you know i had a sleeve full of badges because it was a competition between some of us um i got the chief's scouts award uh in the cadets i you know i wanted to get ranked to be honest i only became a corporal um i had hoped that i would go a lot higher um but yeah that, i mean that's what i did i mean i had this uh, i was disabused of the idea but when i was younger i had this um kind of notion that i wanted to become a police officer and before long i started to see things that uh, I didn't like. Um, so that, that idea kind of disappeared. And I hung out for a while when I was about 15 or 16, I met a guy called Rudy Narayan, um, who was a quite a well-known barrister, um, civil rights activist or whatever you want to call him. And, uh, I worked with him for a while, um, right up until his death in, in the late nineties. Um, so I ended up going from this this sense of oh I want to you know I want to do some good in the community I want to be a policeman to actually you know what um, I'm going to campaign about stuff because I've had an experience and that experience was that uh, a friend of a friend had died in police custody and I didn't like that it didn't sit well with me and these number of people were they friends of yours or were they just people from from the community that you were growing up in largely people from the community I was growing up in um, I think there's only I say only there's there's two people that uh, um, have died in custody that I knew or knew through through my family. And was there a common theme to this death in custody that provoked such a, an emotion in you? Well, yeah, I, I guess there was. I mean, the earliest one was in 1995 when a man called Brian Douglas was um, killed in in Kennington Police Station, and then really bizarrely, in the same year, a man called Wayne Douglas was killed, um, and they were they weren't related, um, but I I knew the sister of Wayne Douglas, and uh, my mother went to school with with Brian Douglas, um, so that was that kind of connection, and um, the the theme with it was that these new style police batons had just been introduced and apparently both men were, were, were killed um, while being restrained by officers. To, I mean, I don't know, I wasn't there, so it, it's going to be speculative at best. But what I did read was some of the statements and um, one witness spoke of, um, you know, uh, of Wayne, and this is, you know, it's, it's on record, um, Wayne being rained with blows and, and that just, it really didn't sit well with me. Um, I mean, it's an isolated incident in that sense, um, but it just didn't sit well with me and I wanted to just do something a bit different. So I ended up um, regularly attending a, a group called the Community Police Consultative Group. It doesn't exist anymore. It was disbanded. Um, but in this group, you'd have the commanders of the police, you'd have um, you know local councillors, MPs, all that sort of thing, talking about issues uh, in the community. And um, 
sometimes it felt like there were winds and a lot of the time it just felt like a real uphill struggle of pushing water uphill um and you know getting nowhere um and so eventually i i go on a journey of um drug addiction alcoholism how did you go from attending meetings where you wanted to be an activist and bring about change to to what you've just said a drug addict i mean when did you take your first drug and what was that drug drugs for me is alcohol and everything else so you know um, whether it's cannabis crack or cocaine and my first introduction to drugs would have been alcohol about the age of about 15 i started drinking um by the time i was about 19 18 19 i was drinking alcoholically but i didn't know it was that your only drug of choice at the time or was you dabbling with other stuff I was smoking uh, cannabis as well. Um, that was, um, I don't like to blame anything other than myself, but it was kind of a peer thing because I remember once uh, being with a group of friends, there were some girls in the group and um, it, it seemed like the girls were impressed by guys who smoked weed, but also that could smoke, you know, roll a joint quite well. Um and when I was asked if I could roll one, I was like, yeah, yeah, of course I can roll a joint. But you couldn't. But you didn't have a clue. I know that feeling. I've been in that situation many times myself, but I became quite an expert at rolling joints, you know, fat heads, slim ones, depending on who I was with and what I was smoking. But 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 let me ask you this, and, and this is important. You say you're a man in recovery, and so how does it feel talking about what you were doing then? Because I can imagine, you know, talking about cannabis and alcohol evokes some deep sort of desires. And I want to make sure that we're not in a space where you're feeling uncomfortable thinking about alcohol and drugs. I go to the anonymous fellowships. So, I mean, people have heard of them, so I'm not saying anything that's outrageous, but, you know, narcotics, narcotics anonymous, even uh, alcoholics anonymous, cocaine anonymous, those kinds of fellowships. And I've been in those rooms now for, oh, wow, 20 years. I mean, I haven't, I've been clean now for 14 years this year um, in September. And um, uh, one of the things that they talk about quite a lot is in the literature, it says, you know, after about five years in recovery, the obsession to use is lifted. And that's been my experience. You know, I don't, I'm not obsessed to use that said, you know, I don't want to be complacent. So I still go to meetings. Um, I still do steps. I still do service and I still have a sponsor. Is that necessary even after 14 years of absence? It is. I never thought it would be. I remember people saying to me, you know, once you're an addict, the trouble with it is that it, if you if you get complacent you will use again and i've seen it happen i've seen people i know and love who have been 15 16 years in recovery who then unfortunately relapsed because complacency set in and so i've just tried to learn from that experience that i need to keep doing this stuff because um there's, there's an old saying that an addict on his um on his own is in poor company um and this is the thing they talk about um in, in a meeting you just need two people you know um because if you have those two people sharing honestly with one another, then a day at a time, you know, you, you're going to get recovery. And, and, and that was my story because I, I remember one of the first meetings I attended um, in, um, was in prison, uh, one of the early ones. It was in Brixton prison. Before you describe that, Andrew, let me ask you this. How did it go from drinking alcohol, smoking cannabis to impress the chicks, the girls, 
what what other drugs did you take and how did that lead to you getting into prison or ending up in prison in the first place? With addiction, one of the things they describe it as is it's being a progressive illness. And for me, it was progressive. So it kind of went alcohol, uh, cannabis, and then eventually taking lines of cocaine and eventually crack cocaine um, on a crack pipe. And I, I was introduced to crack cocaine by... Um, so, I mean, I'm, I'm just lay it out bare. Uh, I lost three people in 1998, all in quick succession. My grandmother and two people who were kind of mentors. And one was almost like a, you know, a mother figure and one was like a father figure. Um, I spent a lot of time with these individuals. One of them was Rudy Narayan, who I mentioned earlier. And I didn't deal with it very well. So I found myself, you know, having sex with sex workers. I met this this girl who I had a, a closely uh, codependent relationship with over about 18 months. And in that time, I started smoking crack cocaine and it became a really regular occurrence. It was a it was a case of not being able to separate having, you know, just normal um, relations with a woman to feeling a sense of I need to have crack cocaine in order to have uh, anything resembling um, good relations. I remember saying to somebody once that my idea of romance was smoking crack by candlelight with my then partner, um, you know, because I couldn't imagine having a relationship that didn't have cocaine or crack in it. Just describe to me, and for anyone that has no idea what the feeling is like smoking that pipe, putting that rock on the on the crack pipe as you describe it and smoking it, why does it have such power in someone's life it's really physiological i think and one of the things for me is when i smoked crack for the first time it just gave me a real rush that felt like i wanted to and could have you know sexual uh intercourse with a number of women at once it just, I, I don't know if you remember there was a cartoon years ago and i can't remember the character but um in in this cartoon um he summoned the power of 10 tigers and that's kind of how it felt i mean i felt like the ready brick man i felt like i was glowing when i smoked that stuff um <laughs> so i'd smoke it and it would just give me this real rush but then what would happen is that after because i did this exercise and in this exercise i worked out that in the eight years or so that i used um drugs heavily you know the hard drugs the crack and the cocaine uh probably about 12 to 18 months of those of what i described as fun the rest of it was miserable um there's a guy that writes uh, he said that you know first his drug use was fun then it was fun with problems and then it was just problems that was exactly my experience um it just went from a place of um, I, I can only describe it as abject fear um, because I started hearing voices. I mean, I'd never tell a psychologist this when I was in prison, but I started to hear voices. I had this real psychosis going on and yet I'd carry on doing it. It was just like I just couldn't stop doing it. Is it true that when, when, you, um, when you're addicted to a drug like crack, as well as it sort of overtaking who you are and everything you do, I've seen these kind of images and people have talked about, and I've witnessed it for myself in certain situations where people are on their hands and knees trying to pick up little bits of white, which they think is crack. I mean, they, they know nothing is around and you laugh, but, but, but you, you know, where you drop on your hands and knees, you've smoked everything that is in existence and yet you still think there is more about. Tell me about that feeling and, and why that is such a, a behavior. That feeling is horrible. You know, uh, I, I can remember buying kind of, you know, a uh, hundred quids worth of, of crack rock. So, you know, five rocks smoking 
one you know one by one and then still being convinced that there must be one more in my pocket so i'm looking at them searching the pockets but you know the description you just gave then about you know kind of being on the car i've attempted to smoke something i found on the carpet that turned out to be biscuit because i'm convinced that it, it must be you know it's a piece of crack that has dropped off of my pipe at some point during the the you know the the um uh well at the time the you know the the procedure uh which was like a military operation to create a pipe sit down in a spot that you're happy with be you know feel like you're okay drink of alcohol of some description to bring you down again is you know is uh very close to you um but yeah no it's it's horrible it's not a nice feeling at all um i can remember going into a crack house on a friday and not emerging until monday morning um you know that that was a really horrible uh experience i, I can remember living in a crack house you know that's that's how bad it got for me at one point Tell me how you ended up in prison. You know, the drug use um, fueled some petty crime. Um, at one point, even trying to get myself put into prison because I wanted to be away from from drugs. More for me because there were just as much drugs in in prisons as there are outside. But ultimately, I uh, I ended up leaving. I did a ge- geographical and I left London for a while to. Um, try and get away from it but also to try and start again unfortunately for me i got into a situation um where although i wasn't using um my um my thinking was still quite the same and i reacted quite badly to a situation um which was um, i would say quite emotive so a domestic incident took place which led me to get uh, an indeterminate um sentence I, I i mean i don't talk about it much in in this kind of space purely because i don't want to um shine a light on the individuals but you know essentially it was a, a an incident between myself my ex-partner and her brother um and um yeah i mean i, I regret it deeply not because anybody you know tells me that i should but because um you know it, it really is unfortunate and i wish i hadn't behaved in the way that i had what was the charge and what was the sentence? There were five, I think, charges. There was uh, false imprisonment, threats to kill, robbery times two, and a fray. And I said, well, look, you know what, I've got a probably cop to false imprisonment and threats to kill, although I made the threats and, you know, nothing actually ensued in that sense. Nobody was physically harmed. I just felt I needed to cop to those. The robbery um, aspect of it was that, you know, while in the house I took the mobile phones um, and I admitted that I took mobile phones of them because because I wanted to just have a discussion with them, have a chat, literally have a chat, and then leave. And uh, a, a siege situation kind of um, enveloped. But anyway, that aside, there was no trial because, I, as I say, I pleaded guilty to those two offences and three of the offences. The, the time robbery times two and the affray were. Uh, I think the robbery was dropped and the affray laid laid on the file. So I guess that just means it's there, but they're not going to pay too much attention to it. Um, and so, um, after that, I was told by the judge that, um, as the, so the sentence would have been one of four years, but a new legislation has just been enacted, I think two or three years prior called indeterminate public protection. And as a result, he halved my uh, notional determinant so the determinant sentence I would have got the four years he halved that to two years and then he took off any remand time which left us with a, uh, a sum of about one year and 250 odd days that became the minimum time I had to serve however what I didn't understand I mean I'm, I'm not thick but I'm not 
always that quick on the uptake sometimes. So when I heard indeterminate, I thought, surely that means there's no end. But nobody could explain to me at the time exactly what it meant. It just meant that, you know, you're going to do the minimum one year and change, and then it will be reviewed. Um, I was sentenced in 2007, and my case wasn't first reviewed until 2012. Um, and I was then sent to open conditions, um, which went okay. Um, I was then recalled very quickly um, for something else that had taken place, despite the fact, actually, that I'd called the police to an incident and as a result of this incident. Are you saying to me, sorry, just so that I understand this, are you saying that you were sentenced to two years on this IPP sentence, you served five years, were released, and during that release time, you got caught up in another situation which meant you were recalled back to prison because you were on licence and broke your licence? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it was... It was inadvertent, and I explained. So, uh, for me, an ex-partner contacted me, and, and I probably don't want to go down that rabbit hole too too much, but an ex-partner contacted me and asked me for a favour. Uh, when I got caught up in meeting her and going and helping with this favour, which was very simple, it was just to follow her to, to see her mother had been taken to hospital. Um, when I arrived, there was another male there, and I just said, well, why am I here? Why, why, you know, I don't know who this guy is, but why couldn't he go with you? Why couldn't he take you and facilitate that? And he took umbrage. So we got into a bit of a scrap and I contacted the police because I didn't want to get into any, um, issue, you know, with any allegations being made that I'd been the aggressor. Uh, when the police came, uh, my ex girlfriend and this, this guy concocted whatever story they concocted and it was two against one. So I was then recalled. And by the time I know anything, I'm sat in Wormwood Scrubs trying to work out what on earth has just taken place. These two sentences, were they the only time that you had been in trouble with the law and had done time or had you got sort of a, a, a history of crime based on or driven by your drug addiction? There's no real history. Um, I mean, there is a history. I mean, I've got, let me think, I think I've got a total of 13 um, offences and five of those were as a result of this IPP situation um, you know the charges that I, I mentioned um, outside of that I think you know there was a caution for possession of cannabis there was um, a, a charge of burglary which was associated with using drugs um, there was uh, obtaining property by deception uh, so there weren't there wasn't very you know anything majorly serious I, I didn't think on there Largely, I tried to stay out of the way, but there were a number, I must admit, of arrests. Often, they didn't result in anything, but often they would be because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time um, or because I was using drugs. What was it like in prison? What What was it like when, when you got this IPP sentence? And I know that's a controversial um, issue and we can deal with that in a minute. But what was it like for you in prison? Because you're a drug addict, you've ended up in prison. And I suppose the first thing you want to, to do is score, you know, not worry about the cell. Fortunately, when I got the IPP, I hadn't been using for some time. So although I was still a little bit shaky, I was okay. Um, you know, drugs wasn't on my mind. What was on my mind is I just wanted to get out of prison. Um, I found it difficult because I'm banged up. But at the same time, um, 
I'm banged up from bang up, if that makes sense, because, you know, I'm, I'm now on a sentence that means I've got to prove myself literally to the parole board before I'm going to be considered for, for release. And that's a really laborious, lengthy process. Um, and so, you know, in total, um, you know, 12 and a half years was spent um, trying to convince these people. One of the other things that I, I found really challenging was that uh, I dealt with probation officers and sometimes even prison officers that would make accusations and put things on the file that weren't true. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to admit that there were occasions when I was probably a bit of a pain in the ass. Um, and I, I look back on it and I think mm, maybe I could have done that better. But I remember, for example, getting a, a security um, entry on my file because somebody phoned up to arrange a visit um, didn't have the visiting order at that time in front of them, rang back five minutes later. And for the prison, that equated to, I must have a mobile phone. And they've rung, this person has phoned me to confirm details in order to then book this visit. And I'm just like, well, could it not just be that she didn't have the the, the, the visiting order in front of her? And the, and the truth is, I've never had a mobile phone in prison. Um, you know, it's, that's, that's the bizarre thing thing about it. But that happened quite a lot for me. You know, security entries on file that weren't you know there was no veracity how long were you out between the five years and doing another five and a half or another seven and a half years and was that two sentences that equated to 12 and a half years well do you know it was the same sentence um because the ipp doesn't break um which is one of the difficulties with it but but you were released and you had a short period outside I was released very briefly. I was I was in a probation hostel, um, and I was there for I think I was out for about four months. And one of these things about I, I suppose I buy into it is that in in this um, kind of country, one of the things with prisoners is that uh, we kind of agree that if you haven't been out for kind of a year or more, you weren't really out. So I, I've never really counted the four months as actually being out because I you know I was out briefly. And then they recalled me and, um, you know, I carried on as if I'd never, never left and then just went through the, the, the process of trying to achieve parole again, um, you know, doing, doing the best I could with what I had. So doing, you know, the, you know, the trusted jobs in the prison, but not in a way that would come across as being sycophantic and certainly not in a way of trying to manipulate um, people or, or the system. You know, very often I got pretty good jobs without even asking for them. Um, you know, induction orderly, um, chapel uh, orderly at, at one point for a little while. There was another one, oh, peer, peer support mentor. These are big jobs in prison in terms of the, the amount of freedom you get, how much time you get out of your cell, how you can sort of circulate around the prison a lot more than, than most prisoners. Yeah. I mean, one of the, there was one particular induction orderly job I had in, um, in an open prison, and that was incredible because it was like that particular prison was left to the prisoners to run. Um, because, uh, one of the things we used to say is that te- uh, 10% of the people do 90% of the work, and all of those people happen to be prison orderlies, um, you know, from induction to chapel to peer support to, you know, the kitchen orderlies who would, uh, organize the meals and stuff. But the indu- induction orderly at that particular prison, had the ability to bring you and allocate you a bed and then the ability to allocate you a move on from the induction hut, you know, and, and determine where that where that would be and what that would look like. And very often people would come and ask and give a sense of, well, I'd like to go to that hut if that's okay. And I never would obstruct it. I mean, because some people, I think, did the job and the power went to their heads. You know, I like to hope that it, it 
didn't go to my head, but it was nice to be able to gain that trust, you know, to, to do that. But ultimately, um, I ended up being returned to closed conditions from that prison. Because you did something wrong? Uh, yes, I did do something wrong. Again, not deliberately. So I went on um, uh, overnight release. And during this overnight release, I met with an old acquaintance. And uh, one day I said to this this lady, um, you know, on the next one, I probably won't get a chance to see you because I need to do a few things to do with my daughter, um, which was to attend the high court and, and all that kind of stuff. She took umbrage and decided to contact the prison and say, well, he's been coming to my house. I don't think he should have been. And, um, you know, has he told you? Was it on his plan? And, you know, there were a few sour grapes and I don't understand why because I didn't do anything wrong. But because I didn't put it on my plan... You know, yes, that was the, the thing that I did wrong. I didn't put it on my plan, and therefore it probably wouldn't have been approved. And so subsequently I was returned to closed conditions because they felt that I was being dishonest. Let me pick you up on two things. The first thing is when you say, you know, prisoners are running the prison. You know, I've travelled the world and been to some prison where prisoners that run prisons are just violent, gang-related, or they have lack of resources and so it's, it's designed in a way where prisoners have to because there's no other way that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about open conditions we're talking about not the kind of prison regime where you are banged up 23 hours or 24 hours a day or or, or even half of that time you're talking about a complete because there will be some people out there saying it's outrageous that prisoners were controlling the prison um so it's important that they understand that you're talking about different prison conditions to the Wormwood Scrubs or the Swale Sides or the maximum security prisons? Oh, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I've seen some of the prisons that you've been to, and actually we're quite fortunate here in that sense because that kind of, um, you know, that hierarchical, um, I don't know, I, I hasten to use the word bully, but that that kind of hierarchical, the prisoners are in control and, and, and people that maybe are outcasts and not eating type of uh, prisons is not what we're dealing with here. But um, it's certainly not a case of, you know, the, the, the lunatics running the asylum. You know, that, that's not what was happening here. It was just the people were given. Um, I think that, you know, open prisons are, they're a cheap alternative in, in this country. You know, they're an opportunity for people to still be controlled to an extent in, in the sense that, look, you know, you've committed an offence, you've gone through the closed estate, now's an opportunity to start organising what reintegrating into the community looks like. But at the same time, you're following rules and regulations. And, uh, I mean, for example, I mean, I was out on a day release once and I got back late accidentally. No, none, uh, nothing I could do about it. It was literally... Uh, a re-regulation of the uh, underground, which meant I subsequently missed the train. And when I got back late, um, I lost the single room I was in, you know, that that kind of punitive action. And I didn't agree with it at the time. I mean, I look back on it, I think, well, you know what, there's probably got to be something in place because otherwise everyone would just roll up late. But when I explained the circumstances, they looked into it, I just felt it was a little bit too much because... One of the things they talk about open prison doing here is replicating how things are outside. Well, actually, I don't know of any council um, where, you know, you turn up late to an appointment and you lose your home. But I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that stuff does happen. Maybe I'm just making light of it. You're not in prison now. And we could talk about the ins and outs and, and how you survived and navigated your, your, your life through prison. But what's the I want to get to the point where you are released from prison, but what's the longest lasting effect of the prison sentence and the time that you served in prison? 
Wow, gosh. Um, I think the longest last... I mean, one of the things I'm struggling with at the moment is I'm obviously, you know, I'm out and I'm in temporary accommodation and I'm hopefully going to move on to some permanent accommodation. I've already uh, left the probation hostel to come where I am now. I've always been a grafter. I've always worked pretty hard. But the, the, the thing for me now is I just feel like I'm playing catch-up. I feel like I'm constantly... I mean, it almost feels like using because I was always chasing that buzz uh, when I was using drugs. But at the moment now, I'm just chasing the opportunity to get my life back to where, you know, I hoped it could have been, you know, some 12 and a half years ago. Whether it would have been or not, it, again, is probably a bit speculative. But what I am grateful for is I do have a job. So, you know, I, I'm working uh, now and I have been since, well, I, I came out of prison uh, in December and I, you know, I was working in January. So, you know, I'm still doing that. I'm now just trying my best to just get to a place where I'm, I'm just happy in terms of what I'm doing and what I'm earning so that the effect of feeling like I'm constantly playing catch-up will be hopefully negated. Was your release and job part and part the same parcel? Was this something that was organised whilst you were in prison in preparation for your release? Or is this something that you've garnered and engineered yourself? It's a bit of both, and and the reason I say that is what happened was is I was in an open prison. I was in Stanford Hill. Uh, I never make any secret about that. And while I was in Stanford Hill, a man came in to talk about opportunities in the civil service and that these opportunities would be available to a small number of prisoners um, as a kind of a pilot. Uh, and when he gave this talk, he basically said... Um, the, un the only unfortunate thing at that time is that it wasn't open to people who were on life license or, or life sentences and it wasn't open to day release. And I went and just said to him, look, mate, you can't come in here and tell me what I could have won. I just got really excited about this. Um, I went and had a word with the governor. He supported it and uh, I was put forward for one of the positions and uh, I interviewed for it with five or six others. Um, and they offered me that job on the 4th of July. So that became my independence day. Um, in a way, I'd just literally just come back from a home leave. And, you know, the governor marched up to me and he said to me, uh, well done, congratulations, we're so proud of you. He shook my hand. I said, well, I have no idea what you're on about. What are you talking about? Because this interview had taken place about a month prior and I'd forgotten all about it. And then he said, yeah, they've, they've decided to offer you the job. Bizarrely, I, I, I work for an arm of the Ministry of Justice. I work for the um, prison probation ombudsman. Um, and so... I don't make any secret about that either, only because my boss has written an article. She hasn't kind of done a neon sign saying, well, he's one of the people we've employed, but there is a reference to the fact that an ex-offender or two are employed at the at the um, PPO. So one of the things that, well, the only thing we do is we investigate complaints from prisoners and people in detention centres and young offenders institutes. Quite a responsibility given your background and the fact that you yourself was a prisoner who had lots of complaints, not only against the system, but against yourself. I mean, it's quite, uh, um, how do you see it? Because do you do you consider this your, your second chance? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's funny because when I came out, I thought, I wonder how long the contract's going to be and am I going to be able to do the probation and all this kind of stuff? And they've given me, you know, by the grace of God or, you know, whatever of my understanding, this higher power of my understanding is that they've given me a two-year contract. And, uh, yeah, it is a second chance. This is an opportunity for me to say, look, actually, you know what, this is what I did back then, but this is what I'm going to do going forward. Um, and what I constantly say, and I don't know where I stole it from, but I, I know I stole it from somewhere, is that I, in my head I have this kind of sense of, you know, I'm not quite where I want to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. 
um, because, you know, where I used to be, that wreckage of, of using, of being in, in prison, of just being banged up, being quite bitter at, at some points, I have to be honest, um, is not there anymore. You know, I've got frustrations today. I'm not bursting with fruit flavor every day by any stretch of the imagination, but I am, I'm really grateful. You know, I've got a roof over my head. I'm not using, I'm earning a, a, a living. Um, it's legal money. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm grateful for that. Why do you see it as your second chance? Because you've worked hard, you know, you've gone through life experiences others have had similar experiences you know whether it's drinks drugs crime whatever their background and you've come to a point in your prison sentence where an opportunity um, showed itself and you grasped at that opportunity you did what was required of you 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 competed you interviewed um, and you were successful in 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 trying to get something that would change your life. So why do you see it as a second chance? Why is it important? I think I see it as a second chance because it it, it helps, I think, to re-legitimise who I am, you know, because, all right, I know that we don't necessarily do it here, but in, in places like, you know, the United States, when you, uh, you're you convicted of a, of a felony um, rather than a misdemeanour, you're in trouble. That's it. You're finished. You're, you're kind of dead to the civic society. Here, that's not necessarily the case. But as soon as, you know, my experience has been that as soon as you talk about a, a conviction, people shut down, even though we're a little bit, I, I think, liberal here uh, in that sense. Uh, as soon as people hear, and I have had the experience because I talk about indeterminate sentence, they're like, well, you must have been a bad boy to get that. And then when I explain, you know, some of it, they're like, is that what you got it for? And I'm like, well, yeah, because there were like 400 offences for which you could get um, an IPP. But I just see it as because it's the civil service. You know, ordinarily, it's something that wouldn't be open to a person in my, my situation. And the fact that they've opened the door and, you know, as you say, you know, it's right to point out that, you know, I'd made complaints and there was a bitterness. But at the moment uh, and going forward, I'm, I'm being as objective as I can be. Uh, in fact, I had a, a prisoner make a complaint about me <laughs> because I... Um, uh, I mean, without getting into, you know, too much of it, um, I, I followed the guidance and I had to reject his complaint. And um, he said that I was racist and, and all this kind of stuff. And I just thought, mate, if, you, if only you knew. Um, because it's really easy, I think, sometimes in prison to... You mean, was this a black guy or a white guy? Do you know what? I don't know. I never looked into it. I think it was a black guy. But he, he, he just wrote, he wrote back literally a week after I'd written to him to say, I'm sorry, but you haven't given us all the information we require. And so you, you, your complaint is ineligible at this stage. I wasn't saying it's an absolute no. I was just saying that it's ineligible at this stage. And he came back and said that, you know, there was a dereliction of duty and that I was a racist and, and, um, talking about empire and, and this kind of stuff. And I was just like, wow, you see, this is the thing. And, and, and the reason, I mean, I don't, want to make light of it because that was obviously important to him um but what went through my head is that he had no idea that there were people because there weren't until i came along and, and uh, as an ex-offender working for this outfit and one of the things i've been saying recently is that there should be ex-offenders who have turned their lives around in every walk of life even from judges because you know uh, we have that lived experience what about trust i mean in terms of being given a second chance working for the Ministry of Justice, the very institution, if you like, or part of the criminal justice system that is responsible for ensuring prisoners are kept in prison, security, uh, rehabilitation. But here they have a prisoner himself 
uh, as somebody with, as you say, lived experience working within that that organization. So how do you feel about the, the, the trust that they have in those offices for you or in the corridors of civil servants? I can only speak for the colleagues that I work with, you know, uh, at the moment, um, and they've been really, really good. Um, they've been really, you know, encouraging and welcoming and, and really helpful. I mean, I've been going through difficulties at the moment in terms of trying to sort out housing and stuff, and that's not their issue. Um, that's for me to sort out and deal with. But they've been really incredibly supportive around that and giving me the time and space that I need to sort that out, uh, not piling on too much work. Um, so I can't, you know, I can't thank them enough. But at the same time, I'd want to look at how things look moving forward if there's an opportunity to develop and move up within the organization then then great but if it's going to be a uh, a case of you know it's a kind of an experiment almost then obviously i wouldn't be quite so so happy with that but i i, I get a sense that you know they do want to uh, encourage me to stay to develop and to move up if if an opportunity presents itself because i'm not an investigator that's the important thing to say as well i'm not i'm not an investigator i'm an assessor so i just look at the information coming in and then just look at the laid down kind of procedures in order to pass things forward for investigation um so my aspiration at this time would probably be to go on to do investigation how do you feel about the fact that they've given you this second chance that they've given you this opportunity um to show that you can be trusted that you can live a law-abiding life if that's the right term how does that make you feel does that and has that made a difference in 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 how you will you know, move forward from here on. Yeah, I mean, it has. It's made. It has made a difference because I feel like I'm. I'm back in the community, and nobody's really paying particular attention to the fact. I mean, I point to it because I don't want there to be any grey areas about whether I've disclosed stuff. So on my social media, I mean, it's funny to say that actually because I've never had social media before now, really. Um, but on my social media, it does point to the fact that I'm an ex-offender, and you know, at some stage that probably will come down because I don't want to be defined by that forever but i feel that you know it is an opportunity as i say to re-legitimize myself in in the you know in the world uh, and that's probably just a personal thing because nobody's really that bothered you know uh i don't think uh, as long as i'm not committing offenses uh i don't think anybody's really looking at me in a you know scrutinous manner uh oh, right it's a, any minute now he's going to go and commit an offense i don't think that's the case and that's why i feel like it's a second chance because i am getting trust that i didn't really get before i think that the trust that you get in open prison is very different to the trust that you get post prison um because open prisons like policing by consent can't operate without the goodwill uh, of prisoners they just can't because they, they, they don't have the resources and the staff that a closed prison have but equally they don't have the violence either do you think other people who like yourself are coming out of prison should be given an opportunity to to work in I know, positions like yours in the civil service or, or for other government organizations or or anywhere do you think because there are lots of people out there who don't believe prisoners should be given first first choice it, it should be people who haven't committed crimes or haven't broken the law or haven't got themselves into trouble even drug use i think that there are always going to be exceptions um because nobody is going to agree that a, a sex offender could become a teacher um and why why would they you know nobody's going to agree that um somebody who's in for you know, a violent offence should necessarily be around young people because they're not the best role models, and, and that's just you know that's just my opinion. So, but that aside, 
you know, the, the, the kind of the, um, you know, the likely exclusions. I think that everybody should be given the chance because if it, you see, the problem is with, with prison is usually there are going to be, uh, reasons that people are there apart from those who willfully go out and do, you know, kind of sex offenses or, or, or violence because they are instrumentally violent. Apart from those people, um, I think that, you know, a lot of people in prison have been through kind of care homes. They haven't had the, the stability and things that, and I haven't, but I've, I've met some of them that everybody else has had. There have been people who've gone through drugs for one reason or another. And, and rather than being treated as from a, a, a healthcare perspective, they're treated from a cr- criminal justice pers- perspective. For me, yes, I mean, yes, there's going to be an element of bias, but I feel that I should have been given this opportunity because life started out okay. But then some things happened along the way that meant that I started misbehaving in in ways that ordinarily I probably wouldn't have done. But these were your choices. These was this was from how I'm hearing you, Andrew. It's not something people bent your arm and made you do. These were choices that you made in life, which led you into the circumstances that um, you know predicted what was going to happen next. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I mean, I, I, what I'm not doing is I'm not going to sit you know, in a pity pot, just kind of saying, poor me, poor me, you know, the society and everybody owes me something because that's not, you know, who I am. But at the same time, you know, things started out okay, I felt. Uh, and then in the middle, it just got a bit, you know, there was a checkered work history. I tried to maintain work while fighting drug addiction. And I felt that I couldn't ask for help. And eventually I got to a place where I had no choice but to ask for help because I was literally on my knees, you know, looking for the crack that I thought I dropped on the floor, for example. And it sounds really cliche to say, but I met a lot of good people that thought they were bad in prison. And I met a lot of, you know, bad people that thought they were good. And, and what that gave me was just this sense of, and I'm probably still going to get it wrong, but a discernment about what I gravitate to. Me personally, I don't think I'm a bad guy. You know, self-praise is no praise. I know uh, people say that, but what you see with me is what what you get. Yes, in the past, you know, I, I've lost my temper. I really lost it. But today I'm trying to just be a bit more easy, look at things uh, in the moment uh, and not get frustrated. And, and instead of getting angry, I just go back and improve my argument or try to. You've made the point nicely here that, that you know, the organisation that you work with have given you back a trust and they've given you a second chance. What would your message be then to to other organisations or employees, potential employees for ex-offenders? I mean, what would you say to them in order to encourage them to give others a second chance in terms of them coming out of prison wanting to get on the straight and narrow if they were on the curve in the first place? Well, the two things, I mean, I had a conversation with somebody the other day and we were talking about this very thing and one of the two, well, the two things I was saying, and firstly that is that with people that go to prison and get life people like oh um but the wonderful thing about people who do um life sentences i say wonderful is that generally speaking you know you'll, you'll do kind of one you know large life sentence unless you're really amazing and you get out of prison you get yourself another life sentence and so when you're sat there for that period of time wondering where you've gone wrong and trying to get a sense of self you become a bit more hungry and more uh, focused on doing better, you know. Uh, so this is one of the one of the things I said to the people when they interviewed me is that as a you know as a lifer, having spent that amount of time, I'm going to prove myself, and the way that I can do that is just by doing what I'm asked to do and asking questions when I need to ask questions, so that I don't mess up. And the second thing is that 
Reoffending in this country costs somewhere in the region of about 10 to 11.5 billion, I'm hearing. And I'm just like, well, if we could bring that down, uh, and it is a we, because it's about the ex-offenders, but it's also about the employers and it's about the community, generally speaking, in their attitude and their their uh, kind of sense of why should this person be given an opportunity. If somebody is a prolific, a persistent prolific offender and they're committing offences that's costing the community that's the reason that people are paying more taxes. Who wants to pay more tax? So all I was saying to this person when we were having this argument is that that 10 billion could be really well used. Um, and that could be, you know, that could be brought right down simply by looking at, you know, people's experiences and the reasons that they've gone to prison, uh, and trying to, um, you know, give them an opportunity to have the, the option not to go back. You know, there are kids out on the street these days that are selling drugs because the, the money, um, for the, the, for the, you know, for the layout is minimal. And that because the money is quite so, you know, so high, uh, they're willing to take the risk of going to prison. Uh, they're willing to take the risk of going and stabbing people. Um, but if we could give these kids the opportunity to say, actually, you know what? I could earn this money legally and not go to prison. I know what I'd do. Do you believe that you're out the other end now? Do you think you've done what you've done? You've come through it. Um, I know your situation isn't perfect at the moment. You're still going through, you know, the kind of resettlement phase um, where things need to, you know, the last little bits of the jigsaw. But do you believe that you'll find those final pieces of the jigsaw so that you can you can put the puzzle together and live the rest of your life without the kind of hiccups that led to you spending such a long time in prison because you're obviously a very articulate guy. You've got your head screwed on. You're seeing things in the right way. Do you think this is the light at the end of your tunnel? I really hope so. You know, I really do. The thing that stands out when you, you ask that is that I remember somebody saying to me, in recovery, the first and second thing that you put in front of your recovery is the second and third thing you'll lose after it. So for me, recovery is really important because what I don't want to do is put myself in a position where I, um, well, where I use again. Um, so I think what I'm trying to say by that is that I, I can't 100% say to you that no uh, situation will arise in the future where I don't think you know, sod this for a game of soldiers and then I go and use. Heaven forbid that was to be the case. But yeah, no, I do. I genuinely believe that it's behind me because one thing I don't want to do, um, I mean, let's put it this way, and this is unfortunate, is somebody was talking to me recently about some of the events that have taken place around the world and uh, coming to a protest. And I said, look, you know what, ordinarily there is a part of me that would have gone to a protest in the past. But the two things that came to my mind immediately about not going to protest is, one, I'm a civil servant, so there are certain things to to observe, um, certain codes of practice. But secondly, uh, if anything happened, whether I'd done anything wrong or not, any arrest would result in me being returned to prison, whereas an ordinary person would be, would be bailed. Um, and so these are the things that today I have to think about. Um, I probably wouldn't have thought about them, you know, 15, 20 years ago, but in that sense, I think one of the things that is really ingrained in me now is consequence. And so, you know, there are consequences to actions. And today, I think what I want to do is just make sure that my side of the street is tidy. Uh, and that's all I can do. Thank you very much, Andrew, for sharing your story with me. I'm not going to ask you any more questions. There are hundreds that I could ask you about what you witnessed in prison, what your life was like in prison. I haven't touched on your siblings or family because it's about you. And I was just interested in hearing why you thought you were given this second chance, not only 
a second chance, but that you were given an opportunity to work for an organisation that has to trust in in you as an individual. Um, more importantly, I suppose, the fact that, it, it, you know, as drug addicts or users are known to be people that are most unreliable, most untrustworthy because they're driven by the need of the next hit, even those that have, well, I hesitate to say come through recovery, but as you admit yourself, you never know whether there will be an opportunity or or, or a situation that you find yourself in that might, you know, it might be like when you were young and you talked about rolling that spliff to impress the girls, you know, that little bit of brandy or that beer in front of you because that chick sitting on that stool next to you will only give in if you have a drink with her, you know, let's, let's hope you don't. You don't go down that road anymore. But thank you very much for sharing your story with us, Andrew. Thank you very much. Thank you. If you've listened to this episode on any of the podcast players that allows you to rate and review, please rate and review. And please subscribe to be notified when new episodes are posted. This podcast was produced by Your Vision Media Limited, original music by J Road Productions, Design work by Studio Minerva and myself, Raphael Rowe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.